Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com with your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This is show number 68. Two veteran airline captains discuss the crash of a Spanair MD-82. The previous podcast reviewed the initial findings from the Spanish accident investigation. The video version of that podcast also included portions of a security camera video that captured the final moments of the flight. This podcast features a discussion that was originally recorded on August 23, 2008, three days after the crash of the Spanair MD-82, and featured Captain Tom Bunn of the Sorfear Flying Organization and Captain Steve Fisher, a veteran airline pilot who has flown for a major U.S. airline for over two decades. Captain Bunn has been a guest previously on the show, and in this episode he'll talk about some of the anxieties and concerns that have been expressed to him by some passengers. In the days following the Spanair crash, I brought Captain Bunn and Captain Fisher together to provide insights into the mechanics of flying a large jet transport, especially the MD-82, and to give the audience an idea of the kind of training and preparation pilots go through to prepare for emergencies during takeoff. Early on in our conversation, the two captains discussed some of the issues that came up during the first few days of the investigation, including a problem with a temperature sensor that caused the crew of the accident aircraft to return to the terminal after its first takeoff attempt. Subsequent to the Spanair event of last week, I wanted to put to the table, or get at the table, some experts who can talk to us both about the fear of flying aspect, as well as the nuts and bolts of flying that kind of aircraft. And, of course, uh, if any of you follow the media, there have been quite a few things said, some of them not too wise, about the whys and wherefores of how an airplane flies or how this accident may have come about. Now, we're recording this on the 23rd of August, which is three days after the event. And although the Spanish authorities are in the midst of investigating it, there are very few facts on the ground that are available to the public. Uh, One thing that did become revealed yesterday was that there was some sort of security camera video at the airport, owned by the airport authority, that apparently took uh, pictures of the entire accident sequence, or at least until the portion where the aircraft left the runway. So, uh, and then there's a Spanish judge who has uh, ordered uh, copies of that sent to him for review. So I'm hoping that uh, within the next few weeks, that video will be out there in public and we'll have something more to go on. Yeah, uh, Todd, I was, <clears throat> I was noting that uh, eyewitnesses said that there was a fire before the airplane came back down to the runway. And apparently the reports are saying that this video doesn't show that. Um, and I just add that in having done some accident investigation, you always get uh, uh, witnesses who will say that there was fire. So that's a difficult thing to put a lot of stock in. So it'll be interesting when the video is, is, uh, is, has been re- more has been revealed to the public about that. One thing I'd like to ask uh, Captain Steve is, is this temperature sensor, this air intake valve, uh, my thinking in general about airliners is that something like that couldn't have an effect. Is there anything that could have an effect, Steve? Yeah, I'm not even sure what temperature sensor valve they were referring to, uh, unless it's the facility uh, just below the windshield, I think, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe it was the, 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 uh, the, the Rosemont probe there. Uh, the, the the total air temperature probe. That's the only thing I can think of. And and if, if from what Steve is saying, the Rosemont probe, the uh, the, uh, the the probe that converts uh, temperature accurately. You see, when you're flying rapidly, some of the all of us know this, but some of the listeners don't know this. When you move an airplane rapidly through the air, uh, it changes uh, the temperature of the air as it hits the the airplane during the 
you're friction or whatever. And so there has to be some correction done. And you can do this correction uh, using charts, but the Rosemont probe just gives you a, a pretty accurate indication without having to go to any trouble. But it's not something you really need for flight, and so that's why the MEL says you don't have to have it. And it just continues to show up in the news that people are talking about maybe this had an effect. I don't see it. That's why I want to ask Steve if he had any ideas on it. Yeah, actually, I, I don't have a copy of the uh, MDA MEL handy with me, uh, so I don't know if that's even deferrable or not. If that's if that's what we're talking about, indeed. Uh, and just for the uh, for the. Uh uh, audience there, MMEL, that's uh, the Master Minimum Equipment List, if I'm not mistaken? That's it. And that's a list that says basically what combination of systems can be inoperable on the aircraft and still legally be able to take off. Right. But uh, actually it does send uh, input to the uh, thrust rating computer on the MD-80 you know, the, to the, so that you have the correct... Uh, thrust setting. Now, you can take the uh, thrust setting bugs, you know, and do that manually. So from that regard, uh, you can you can do without it. But uh, I don't know that, you know, erroneous thrust setting was a problem on this or not. It's hard to tell. And again, that detail, that level of detail hasn't been revealed by the Spanish authorities yet, nor do I expect it to be revealed until some weeks or maybe even months into the investigation. Well, for example, I'm thinking what Steve just said. If you deactivate the uh, the probe, which according to news said that could be done legally, uh, once you deactivate the probe, uh, then you can manually set the power settings for takeoff. And uh, if there was any confusion by the crew about the fact that they have to do them manually, uh, that would be hard to imagine that they wouldn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so it becomes still difficult to see how a temperature gauge could be a factor with with the accident. Um, the other day when Steve and I were chatting about this, uh, I was saying it, it, with a runway as long as this one is, flying an MD-80, uh, which maybe needs 3,000, 3,500 feet to get airborne, you've got a runway that's three times that length. And so to have an engine failure result in an accident on such an extremely long runway is pretty hard to understand. But um, since some of the eyewitnesses said the airplane actually did leave the runway and was put back on the runway, then we have a whole new ball game. It, it, it now gets into this question of, 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 of following the standard procedures for engine failure. And the way it normally works is that uh, before you even go out to the airplane, you calculate uh, what's called takeoff safety speed. Uh, we use a term V1. So we set uh, on our airspeed indicator a marker at that particular speed, it might be around 120 miles an hour. And so if you have an engine problem before you reach 120, you simply stop the airplane. That's that simple. And you keep your hand on the throttle so that you know that if you have a problem, all you have to do is move your hand and shut the throttles off. When you reach the one, you take your hand off the throttle and put it on the wheel. You move from your stop if anything goes wrong mode to your fly if anything goes wrong mode. So the decision is made very crisply. And even if you have plenty of runway, the standard procedure is if you have an, uh, an engine failure after reaching V1, which is very close to takeoff speed, uh, to go ahead and take off. Take your time. Climb up to uh, a, an altitude of a few hundred feet. Um, get out the checklist. 
slowly and deliberately take care of the problem, come back and land. When things are done that way, we rarely have an accident. I'm not sure if we ever did. But there have been accidents when pilots try to stop after V1. There have been accidents when people try to put planes back on the runway after V1. It's a no-no. And oftentimes pilots say you can't have too much runway. But that may be the problem here, that there was so much runway in front of the pilot that he was tempted, and he put the plane back on the runway. We've never trained for that in the simulator, and he might have run into something unexpected and, and not been able to handle the plane. And that was one of the observations I was making to uh, someone else the other day, is that the standard procedure, if you have an engine failure, even if the thrust goes to zero, is you continue taking off. And the design of all modern airliners are such where you can have the most critical engine fail at the most critical part of flight, which is takeoff, and still be able to take off and fly the airplane around and land again if need be. But what isn't uh, required is the airplane being flyable if there are multiple system failures, which, and again, we don't know if there were multiple system failures or if it were just an engine failure. But certainly in the history of looking at incidents and accidents over the years, especially when I was at uh, Boeing, there are a number of instances where the engine failure was so severe. Uh, for example, an uncontained engine failure where pieces of the engine, the fan disc and fan blades are going all over the place, where you could have multiple systems being affected, hydraulic systems, fuel systems, even other engines. So uh, until there's more data on the ground, it's very hard to say exactly what happened with this airplane. It's a good point if he had something more than just an ordinary engine failure and he had the plane incapacitated in some way, then that's a whole new ball game. And that's something that it'll take, if that's what happened, it'll take a while for to figure that out. And Steve, I have a question for you, uh, an MD-80 question. Uh, have yeah. you ever had in a situation where you had to do a rejected takeoff at any speed on an MD-80? Um, in the 80, I don't believe I've ever had to do one in the 80. I had to do one in the Fokker 100 a few years ago. Uh, it was a fairly low speed aboard. It was like around 80 or 90 knots. And the Fokker 100, by the way, is a somewhat smaller, similarly shaped aircraft, uh, two engine engines in the rear. And that aircraft model was flown rather extensively by American Airlines for a number of years. Right. I am not, in fact, I'm just trying to think back over the years. I've been thinking that's the only, that's the only rejected takeoff I've ever done that's sticking in my mind. So you've done thousands of takeoffs and landings, and of all those, this is the only one. So uh, that, that's in, in, that, in a real airplane, yeah. I mean, right. you know, you know, we practice that in the sim, obviously, but uh, in a real, real life, that's the only one I can think of right offhand. But I just wanted to impress upon the audience that this sort of event, starting a takeoff roll and having to stop it before you take the aircraft off, is a rare event. Yeah, the last few years now, they've they're really kind of hammering us on try not to do high-speed aborts <laughs> because a lot of times they cause more problems than they're solved. Right now, they've just the last few years now, just fairly recently, they've come up with 80 knots as a, uh, a reference point, if you will. And uh, below 80 knots, you know, it's a fairly low speed, and you, you'll reject for just about anything if it's, you know, safe. Above 80 knots, just a very, very few things. Uh, Engine failure, uh, fire, uh, you get a predictive wind shear, which some airplanes are capable of, uh, that sort of thing. You know, just any time you think that the airplane really is not going to be able to fly. But other than that, uh, they basically uh, 
when you even get close to V1, and when you consider, uh, unless it's something really serious like that, uh, just taking the thing into the air, you know, getting everything sorted out, take your time, analyze it, and then come back and land with the full length of the runway available to you instead of just, you know, possibly a very short amount remaining. Now, this is getting into, uh, again, a, a bit of speculation. I'm not okay. saying that this was a consideration in the Span Air event. But if you do have a high-speed rejected takeoff, are there a set of standard maintenance actions that have to be taken that would take the aircraft out of service for several hours and might cost the air, airline quite a bit of money to go through those checks? Well, you would, if, you, if you did a high-speed abort, yeah, the brakes would heat up. Oh, yeah. And, and it would take a certain amount of time for the brakes to cool off in order to uh, do another takeoff. But even those considerations, time out of service, time to cool the brakes off, possibly canceling the flight, those aren't considerations in pilot decision-making. If you feel a need to do a rejected takeoff at a high speed, below V1, it's well within your rights to do so and no one can tell you otherwise? I mean, even, even when the first officer is making a takeoff, it's the captain's hands who are on the throttles until you get to V1. And I bring up that issue because the questions come up, and I've gotten a few of them over the years, and I'm certain that Tom has had a few, where passengers ask, well, you know, what's the relationship between finances and safety? Will the airline do things to save money to compromise safety is what the questions boil down to. And I just wanted to impress upon people that in a situation like this, the flight crew has a decision-making power, not the accountants back at the head office. And even though that's the case, what kind of results or what kind of feedback have you gotten, this is uh, for Captain Tom here, for uh, people who are afraid of uh, what's going on here and are somehow full of anxiety because of what they've heard? Well, you know, the kind of thing that I've run into, uh, Todd, is that people who uh, have been in the uh, SOA program uh, to deal with fear of flying. And uh, I've gotten a few emails from people saying, gee, I was doing fine, and, and now I feel like I've had a setback. And, and this comes from, from the need to have absolute safety. Um, I keep reminding them, look, wait a minute, you wouldn't be having a setback if you recognize that nothing is absolutely safe, even airplane flying. It's just that um, it's hard to, for, for many people to accept any risk at all. If they're aware of any risk at all, they think, well, I just can't do this. And yet they'll drive cars all the time because they feel like they're in control. Um, and so I have to just say, look, there's two things I can tell you. One is you need to be able to really understand that nothing is absolutely safe, but if, if there are all the things that we could be doing. Flying is remarkably safe. And I might remind them that, for example, that after 9-11, uh, in a couple of years after 9-11, there was some suspicion that they realized there were more traffic accidents, and they began to think maybe people are dying on the highways because they're not flying because of fear after 9-11. So there was some research done, and sure enough, it turned out that that was the case. And in fact, they determined that in the years since 9-11, people who were, because of 9-11, turning to driving, there were actually more fatalities on the highway that took place because of that than actually were killed on that day in New York. So flying is remarkably safe, and, and, and Steve, and, and you also know that pilots get life insurance at the best rates you can get because they know it's a safe job. And we just have to say, look, nothing is absolutely safe. This is as safe as anything you could be doing 
safer than a lot of things you could be doing. Although you don't feel in control, which helps you feel safe if you meet the captain, that'll help you feel better. But this accident is just not going to change aviation. Um, it's not going to change what the mechanics on your airplane. It's not going to change what the pilot's thinking. It's something that has happened only because even though we have a backup for everything that can go wrong with the plane, something went wrong with our backup system uh, in this case, and we don't know what it is yet. And I'd like to add a couple of things about public perception, one of them being that because this airplane accident was so well covered by the media, it happened in Spain, it happened during the uh, middle of the uh, workday, and so it was heavily covered by European newspapers and television, of course, here in America. There's a lot of public knowledge about this event. And there have been other events this year, even ones involving MD-80s, which re received almost no coverage whatsoever. I'm thinking specifically of uh, one that happened in the Congo earlier this year, where it was a fairly dramatic crash on takeoff. But there is very little in the way of news coverage. And the civil aviation authorities of, uh, of the Democratic Republic of the Congo simply aren't up to the task of doing a thorough investigation like you would see in Spain. And nor is there a lot of openness about what little investigation has happened. So it's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of thing. This event is quite the opposite. And one of the other things that I've seen is that there have been questions I've seen in the media about what about the MD-80? Is there a problem with the MD-80? And on airsafe.com, looking at the traffic over the last three days, far and away the page with the most traffic was not the Spanair page, but the MD-80 page. Yeah, and Todd, it was interesting. I got an email from somebody who said that they had looked on the site and that they found that uh, the MD-80 accident rates were really high, and I wrote back and said, look, take a look at the page, because if you look at the stats on the MD-80, it's really very good. And she was comparing it with a 737. I said, look, it's actually a little better than a 737. She went back and took a look and saw that that, that was correct. And uh, that's one of the, uh, not one of the dangers, one of the things I am very careful about at airsafe.com. I sort of separate the pages. I might have a page that lists the fatal events of a particular aircraft model. And right now for the MD-80, there are 15. And some people might say, oh my goodness, 15, that's a huge number. But keep in mind that the MD-80 has been flying for almost 30 years. And there are tens of millions of flights in the history of the MD-80. And if you were to look at the rate, that is the number of fatal events per million flights, the MD-80 is on par with airplanes of that era. Now, as a side note, people get even more worried when they look at the uh, 737 page because there's something like 55 fatal events there. But again, the 737 has had many, many more flights than the MD-80 has. And if you look at the rate of fatal events, uh, they're comparable. And another thing I wanted to uh, impress upon the audience is that you have to look at the context of where airplanes are flying. Obviously, this airplane was at a very uh, highly rated airport, in a system that's very much on the, on the order of the level of sophistication you would see in the U.S., Canada, Australia. But accidents still happen. But if you have an aircraft type that tends to fly with uh, airlines in the developing world, at smaller airports that don't have control towers or instrument landing systems, you tend to see more accidents in that flying context. So, again, getting back to the list of accidents, if you look at where the fatal events have occurred, you'll see that a disproportionate number of them occur in places that don't have the kind of resources and infrastructure that you see North America and Western Europe. Todd, my guess is that she just looked at the uh, MD-80 page and saw 15 and decided, okay, that's all I need to know, and didn't right. really compare. 
because when she did compare, she saw exactly what you're saying. Most people in the audience probably know this, but some may not, that the MD-80 is actually a variation, an advanced variation of the DC-9 series of aircraft. So uh, the MD-80 or aircraft like it have been flying for over 40 years. So there's a tremendous amount of experience with how that kind of aircraft handles in a variety of situations. Tremendous amounts of knowledge that have been gained over the years. And the procedures that are in place now for every MD-80 out in the world is based on the experience that has happened over the past 40-plus years. So more so than most aircraft, there's quite a body of knowledge to work from. Something I've pointed out from time to time with people is that uh, uh, we've been flying airplanes for over 100 years, and when something does go wrong, uh, there's uh, a board that determines the cause and also the fix, and something is done to either an engineering fix or a procedural fix, training fix, um, to see if we can make sure that doesn't happen again. Usually we're successful. And because of that, nowadays in order for an accident to take place, and I think this fits in with what you just said, nowadays for an accident to take place, it's got to be something really very unusual. And that's why it may be that this accident, something happened to the airplane that has never happened before in those 40 years that the uh, MD-80 has been flying in one permutation or another. Or it could be that, as I was suggesting, it's a possibility that the runway is long enough that the captain decided to put it back on. So uh, this is going to take a while to find out. And you know what? By the time they find out, the public will have gone on and not really care very much. And by the way, there are a variety of organizations involved in the investigation. You have the Spanish equivalent of the NTSB who is involved. You have the airline. You have the FAA sending representatives as well as the NTSB. Boeing is sending representatives. And also the engine manufacturer, Pratt & Whitney, is involved in the investigation. So this is, the, this is the, the usual situation. You have all of these various parties involved who have a de- direct interest in the accident and who have specific technical skills and, uh, and knowledge about the system and about the aircraft that will help the investigation. But again, uh, I'd like to stress that although you have these commercial entities involved, the airline, the manufacturer, by no means are they running the investigation. This is under the uh, command of the Spanish government. And if they want to include them, they get included. If they start misbehaving, they'll be thrown out of the investigation. But this is not something that is likely to happen. This is a very cooperative sort of thing. And the folks who are involved are interested in getting to the bottom of what happened. Inside an investigation, the people who are involved at this stage aren't worried at all about any political or financial or legal ramifications. That's for someone else to worry about. Right now, it's solve the problem, understand the problem, make sure it doesn't happen elsewhere. Sounds good, Todd. That might be a good place to end it. Let's... That sounds good to me. And uh, one last thing before uh, we leave. Uh, uh, Steve, just want to get uh, a very little bit about your background relevant to this conversation. The fact that, uh, like, for example, how long you've been flying, how many uh, aircraft types, and how long you've been flying the MD-80, that sort of thing. Well, <laughs> I've been flying for my current airline for 21 years. Uh, i got over 4,000 hours in the MD-80, both as a captain and as an FO combined. FO is first officer, the right-hand seat person? Yeah, the co-pilot, second in command. And I've flown here with my current airline, I've flown about eight different types of airplanes and a whole bunch more before I came to work here. 
I've been flying totally. Well, I, I first sold it in 1966, so I marked that. <laughs> you know, so that's 42 years, and professionally for 36 years, and with my current airline for 21 years. It's safe to say that you're a very experienced pilot. Well, I like to think so. And do you have any qualms, any hesitation, any fear whatsoever about the MD-80? No. I, I, as I tell people, you know, on the SOAR chat and whatnot, uh, you know, I'd be the first one to turn around and walk back up the jet bridge if I thought there was going to be a problem, specifically. And in general, if I thought so, I wouldn't have, uh, you know, wouldn't have bid to fly the thing. So, no. To, to answer your question, no, I have none. Very good. And one last thing. Uh, you just reminded me that uh, SOAR, which is uh, Captain Tom Bunn's organization, has something called SOAR Chat, where anyone can dial in, I believe it's once a week, and chat about whatever when it comes to their fear of flying. Is that correct, Tom? Yeah, that's right. Every Wednesday night, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, if they go to fearofflying.com, they can click on chat and join us. One other thing I thought, Todd, you might be interested in, that uh, not only is Steve uh, an airline pilot, but his father was as well. Oh, my goodness. Generations of experience. Yeah, yeah, the, the bug bit me too. And if just going back a little bit to the you know the frequency of accidents, I mean I kind of followed this sort of thing when I was a kid, and I can remember, and I know Tom can too, that you know years ago, if any airline went more than you know say two or three years without having a major accident, that was pretty good. And uh, but anymore, you know, uh, that that just doesn't happen the way it used to. And just to give you a couple of examples, uh, Southwest has been in operation since about 1970 over 30 years, zero fatal events killing passengers. Spanair was in operation since 88. This is their first event. And there are a lot of other major airlines in the world that go years and decades without having a fatal event. So, uh, again, to the audience out there, things have gotten better since uh, 20, 30, and 40 years ago. And uh, let's hope that it gets even better from this point onwards. Additional information about the Spanair accident, including links to a video showing the crash, and links to further updates from the investigation will be available at spanair.airsafe.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.